<clears throat> Excuse me, it is good to be here uh, this morning with you. Um, it's been one of those uh, weeks, of course, where even gathering like this, how easy it is uh, to take for granted, and uh, what, a, what a privilege it is to be here with when, uh, when we don't know uh, what tomorrow holds, um, and uh, that, uh, that which we uh, count on and, and find very much uh, a lifeblood to us, gathering with God's people in worship. Uh, there may be a season where we're not able to gather in this way, so I'm certainly glad that we, uh, that we are. Um, I woke up yesterday morning and realized that the, uh, in light of everything, especially in recent days where things seem to escal- uh, be escalating, um, that it wasn't time to, to, to stay the course in terms of our, our current series and what was, I was planning on preaching on. So we're going to, we're gonna, we called an audible yesterday and we're going to look at something different uh, this morning. We're going to look at uh, Psalm 1, 130. But before we uh, turn to God's Word, let's, let's pray. Father, as we come into your presence uh, this morning... Uh, we, uh, we're mindful of the words that we've sung, that we're as, as, as it were fail, we're feeble as dust. So much of our life, our, our successes, our accomplishments uh, as humanity has created in us a great arrogance, a great dependability on what man kind can do, and yet we're mindful at a time like this that you are the only one who reigns. You are the only one who controls the future. We do not. We thank you that even as we've confessed this morning that not, nothing, the, the things that we read about um, continually, the things that are on our minds, these are all under your care and control. And nothing happens without your providential and sovereign uh, keeping of it. And so we uh, trust the current affairs, this world, um, our lives, our fellowship, our community, both locally and the greater uh, global community. Uh, Lord, we entrust it all to your care and keeping. And we know that this isn't by accident. You have plans and purposes for it. You have plans and purposes for, for us. Um, in and through uh, these events, and that um, we want to be attentive to that. We want to be um, really listening to what you would teach us, greater dependence of faith. We want to be awakened and arrested by these events. We pray that that would be uh, many throughout this world, that that they would use this event, hard as it is, uh, the, the fear that it has created in so many ways, the, the real uh, pain and suffering that is, is taking place, um, we pray, Lord, that you would use that to bring glory to your name, that, you would, uh, that there would be a great calling out uh, upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our hope. Um, that's our desire. That's our longing. We don't want this opportunity to be wasted um, for the world um, or for our own lives. And so would you lead us in this and be gracious. We thank you for your word. Thank you that we have something of surety in a very uncertain world. We have something that is rock solid upon which we can stand. And our desire to, is to do that, to, to, to find some fresh equilibrium to our lives now. Um, and so be with us by your spirit. Lead us and teach us. 
and show us the things that you would have us see this morning and change us because of this encounter with you by your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've all been uh, utterly uh, besieged by nonstop coverage on COVID-19 with uh, fear throughout the world of an unchecked virus uh, with the potential for uh, alarming casualties. Uh, We've watched... uh, Chaos and volatility hit the financial markets with trillions of, of wealth lost in, in, a, in a few mere days and a growing fear of a, of a deep uh, economic downturn. We're, we're experiencing the unprecedented closures and cancellation of public events. Uh, so much uncertainty abounds and all we do seem to know is that life is likely to be much more uh, disrupted and, and, and restricted over the coming weeks. Uh, But I want to suggest to you that throughout history, the church, while not removed or, uh, you know, removed from or immune to uh, such trying events, the church has often faced uh, such events quite distinctly. Let me uh, read to you something from author Eric Metaxas. He, He writes the following, between 250 and 270 AD, a terrible plague believed to be measles or smallpox devastated the Roman Empire. At the height of what came to be known as the plague of Cyprian, after the bishop St. Cyprian who chronicled what was happening, 5,000 people died every day in Rome alone. The plague coincided with the first empire-wide persecution of Christians under the emperor Decius. Not surprisingly, Decius and the other enemies of the church blamed Christians for the plague. That claim was, however, undermined by two inconvenient facts. Christians died from the plague like everybody else, and unlike everybody else, they cared for the victims of the plague, including their pagan neighbors. This wasn't new. Christians had done the same thing during the Antonine Plague a century earlier. As Rodney Stark wrote in The Rise of Christianity, Christians stayed in the afflicted cities when pagan leaders, including physicians, fled. Indeed, Amos, a professor of New Testament in early Christianity at Notre Dame, notes that an epidemic that seemed like the end of the world actually promoted the spread of Christianity. By their actions in the face of possible death, Christians showed their neighbors that Christianity is worth dying for. And so rather than, say, on the one hand, panic buying toilet paper and pasta, or on the other hand, uh, you, you know, exhibiting unconcerned indifference. We need to be a people who see these trying events as an opportunity to display the abundant provision of grace that is ours in Christ. I mean, we, we have a solid hope and good news to tell. And surely that should influence and shape how we face this present crisis. Uh, For all around us is is fear and uncertainty. So much seems to be out of our control. And, And while the numbers and statistics are easy to quote, we need to be reminded that each one of those numbers is a real person with real fears and a real family that loves and mourns and grieves. And, 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 and even in the sometimes hysteria, we cannot lose the truth that lives are being shattered, that there's real suffering taking place in the world right now. 
And while most of us in this room may be, you know, mildly inconvenienced right now, we may soon find that it all comes much closer to our front door, that, that, that some of us will, will eventually feel the full sting of this crisis. And so I want to speak into where we are today and maybe help prepare us for the uncertainty of tomorrow as well as better equip us to love those around us who may really be shaken. And to do that, I, w- I want us to look this morning at one of the lament psalms, which are, are psalms that bring a pain and sorrow and anguish before God in, in the form of a song or a prayer, and they just They just pour their hearts out before God. In fact, a remarkable number of psalms in them, the writer comes and brings a problem. He brings his devastated heart. He brings his wrecked life. He brings his suffering. And he plonks it down in front of God. And he pours out his heart about it. And it's very, very important that we learn how to use these songs for our worship life and our prayer life, corporately and individually. They are absolutely powerful. They are, they are sad songs that cry out to God when things are looking bleak. And the psalmist is usually facing danger or suffering, and he cries out to God for rescue. And during the psalm, sometimes rescue comes, and sometimes it doesn't. There is absolutely no whitewashing of difficulty in these songs. Sometimes you, you, you'll find this wonderful finale as, as they say, I did feel like this, but God has delivered me. Pray, praise the Lord. And sometimes you don't get that. Sometimes there, there still is, are questions and confusion and darkness at the end of it. And, and, and that is what happens in real life. There are some days, weeks, months years, lifetimes even, where where we are able to look back at the end and say, wow, God was with me. I see what he was, was, how he was working his purposes out. And there are other times when we reach the end of it and we say, do you know what? I have no idea what that was all about. And it's still painful. I trust God, but it is still painful. And we just need to be honest about that. And the Psalms are wonderful in that way. They don't, they don't provide us with just easy answers. They, just, you know, they don't try to just you know, rush over things in a rush to a quick answer. No, they say something that is just, you know, where, where there is just pain and darkness and difficulty. And, and we have to face it. And we have to, to understand it for what it is and feel it and, 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 and live it together. And so what I want to do is look at just one of those psalms today, Psalm 130, and to come to it with this question. What do we do with our suffering? What do we do with our suffering? Now, that, now, that's not the question that we often ask and will again, why does suffering happen? It's not an abstract question. It's not a theoretical question. It's not an apologetics issue where people, uh, you know, ask you a question, you give them an answer. We're, we're not doing that today. I mean, that's valuable, but, but we're not doing it today. This is, what do you do with suffering when you don't understand when the answers don't satisfy? When, when we're confused and, and, and dark and in pain, what do we do? And I think it's important for us to consider that question because much of our life experience will be marked by difficulty and suffering, if the Bible writers are anything to go by. I mean, Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have trouble. 
And Paul said, I'm wrestling with the reality you know, of a body that's wasting away. My soul is being renewed, but the outer man is rotting. In other words, you know, it is well with my soul, but my body is going to pieces. And, and I'm having to live with that and learn how to cope with, with it. And, and, and Peter says, don't be surprised, brothers, when you, when, 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 you know what, don't be surprised at fiery trials that come upon you. And James says, guys, rejoice when you face trials and, and temptations of many kinds. So trials, temptations, persecutions, sufferings, danger, that's part of life. They, they are part of what the Bible writers expect us to have. And so we need to know, you know, when those things happen, when leukemia hits someone who's close to you, or even you, and when miscarriages happen, and when the, someone in the family commits suicide, and when someone you love is raped, and when an unseen virus brings fear and, and, and death, and, and I mean, you don't need me to list them all, just the things which take place, which, which cause us deep pain and cause us to go to God and say, what's going on here? What do we, what do, we do when that happens? Where do we go? Well, the psalmist here in Psalm 130 serves us well in, in helping us to see some answers to that question. It's, it's a short psalm, but it's, it's so rich with insight. Let me read it to you. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This psalm, like so many of the laments, is born out of, a painful, out of painful suffering, and it's, it's sustained God's people who've been in painful suffering for two and a half thousand years. And I think there are four things that we can learn from it about how we respond to suffering when it comes, which it will, and, and, and for most of us it already has. The psalmist here begins with weeping, and then moves on to worshiping, then describes waiting, and then finally, witnessing. And, and I just want to comment briefly on those two verses of each, on, on, those, of those, on those four things. As we learn from this man who suffered and is crying out to God. And the psalmist starts where we do, with weeping. Look at verses 1 to 2. He says, out of the depths. This is not whitewashing. If people say, how is, Christian, you know, how is suffering compatible with Christianity? We say suffering is an integral part of Christianity. It's, it, it's, it's what the whole Bible seems to be wrestling with. It's not an objection to Christianity. It's part of it. And here the psalmist is saying, out of the depths, out of the, the pits, I cry to you, O Lord. Hear my voice. Listen, God. Let your ears be attentive to my cry. I, I don't understand, but when I come and, and, and bring these depths and this sorrow and bleakness to you, I want you to listen to me, God. That's where the psalmist begins, because he knows that's where we begin. 
And this is not a, a carefully balanced, theologically measured, nuanced answer or argument about how we're supposed to respond in suffering. This is just a weeping, wailing, crying out of someone who is in, in pain and distress and doesn't really know what to do with it. Someone who's, who's, who's rents to their gut by what's going on. That's the way the psalmist begins, and, and, and a lot of psalms do. This isn't an isolated instance. If you read through the book of Psalms, you'll find many, many of them begin like that or, 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 or burst into it halfway through. How long, O oh Lord? What are you doing? Why? God, I, I, I feel such pain and sorrow in my heart. Please rescue me. He begins here, and, 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 and that is what we do. That is... What it is, really, to be human, and, and it's important that that isn't rushed over in, a, in the course of a, of a journey to get somewhere else. And it's important that we don't, don't treat it lightly in a, in a culture where, to be honest, mourning and lamenting is not a big part of our corporate life together. I mean, certainly in the psalmist day, and of course, Jesus' day as well, and, and still today in many Eastern cultures, there is a, a much stronger tradition of, of, of corporate distress and mourning when tragedy strikes, particularly death. I mean, in our culture, we don't really do, do that. In our culture, most of it, it, it's sort of quite quiet, quite on your own. In Eastern cultures, frequently, if somebody is weeping and mourning because death is struck, you just, you just gather around and make as much noise as you can to support them in their grief and to, to cry with them. And I think this is part of the humanity that Jesus uh, validates. See, Jesus says, I want you to realize that to be human is to be like me. Jesus comes and expresses what it, what it looks like to be truly human. And many of us, um, even those of us who maybe don't know the Scriptures all that well, might know that the, the, the shortest uh, English verse in the Bible is, is, is just, Jesus wept. He was, he was standing, seeing the grief of friends, at the fact that a friend had died, and he just poured out his heart and cried. Jesus took on human flesh to such an extent that he experienced the waves of grief and pain and stood at the tomb of a friend and cried about it. He wept. He was distressed. And people looked at him and, and saw how moved he was. And they said, look at how he loved him. This is a deep-feeling man who wanted to, to, to come and validate that aspect of our humanity. To say, if you're going to be human... It involves crying when grief comes. That's why he did it. To live in our shoes. To live life through our eyes. That's Jesus' way. And that's what the psalmists do. Now for many, that, that might come naturally. It, it, it might sound obvious. Well, of course you cry when suffering happens. For some of us, it's an instinctive thing. Uh, our emotions, where people where our emotions are near the surface, uh, surface, and you find yourself crying, not just when suffering um, happens to you, but when it happens to others. You find it easy. But others of us, you could say, are a bit more you know, stoic, and we don't find these things instinctively easy. And actually, we can often feel very uncomfortable and, 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 and not really know where, where to look when people express strong emotions and, and be less comfortable doing that corporately. But actually, the, the biblical injunction 
born out of an Eastern culture. The Bible is an Eastern book, and it says that what we need to do is to rejoice when people rejoice and to weep with those who weep, because that's what it is to be God's renewed people. That is how we respond biblically to deep suffering and pain in the world we live in. It's important that we know that it's right and good to live in the, the pain of suffering and to acknowledge it for what it is and to, to pour out in our heart and say, I'm just distressed. I am wounded by this. I'm hurt. This is part of what it is to be a Christian. It's part of our discipleship to learn how to experience pain alongside other people, to empathize, to show compassion that way. And it's very tempting not to do that, particularly if you're, you know, quite an analytical character. It can, it, it, it can be very tempting to, to, you know, rather charge in with something else instead of crying, to, to come in instead with questions. You know, how, you know, how could God let that happen? Or with answers, that's even more tempting. Oh, I, I, I bet that's happened just because, you know, uh, th- this will come out of it. Don't worry. Or to charge in with advice. I had that once. This is what you should do. Or to charge in with silly comments like, it'll be fine. Maybe it won't. And not that any of those things can never be said to people in suffering. Of course they can and often are rightly said. But that's not where we start. If somebody comes to you with with suffering and plonks down a problem or, or grief in front of you, our response is to share their pain and to cry with them and not to go, oh, this is why. That's not the main motive we should have. The main motive is how can I support them in their suffering, the suffering that they're in? And, and we do that by just getting together and saying, I'm so sorry, and crying together with them. Not rushing in with questions, answers, advice. This is actually one of the things that Job's comforters got right. I mean, you read Job, and Job's comforters get a, get a bad rap because they, they, they got a number of things wrong. Uh, but here they are absolutely on the money. It says in Job chapter 2, uh, two Job has, has experienced terrible suffering and affliction. It says, they made an appointment together to come to show sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. That is how to respond when someone suffers. I'm not saying that you can't say anything for a week. But for people to come along and say, I am not going to rush in and give my explanation, my arguments, my questions. My first responsibility is to cry with them. And and if anything, just to say, I'm so sorry. And to be moved by their pain with them. Now, I labor that point because it can be so easy with the rest of what I'm going to say uh, to sound like we need to jump out of that and land somewhere else. And, you know, quick, let's, let's get on to the good bits. It's important that we don't do that for our own sake as sufferers and, and as a, a community when others are suffering and we want to stand with them. So first of all, the psalmist starts with weeping. 
We then move on to verse, uh, verse 3 to 4, and he moves on from weeping to worshiping. Uh, he's crying out to God from the depths, and, 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 and that, that, part, that hasn't gone away. But then he says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And what is this? This is a prayer of worship to God for the gospel. That's what it is. If you kept a record of our sins, Lord, we would all be finished. But you are merciful and gracious and forgiving, and that's why we stand in awe of you. That's the psalmist's journey, because he knows, as we'll see in a moment, he knows that if God was to line up his life and all of his sins and say, well, this is all that you've done, and now I'm going to give you what you deserve in exchange, the psalmist knows that he would have, you know, that he would have far worse than he's got now. So he says, I may be in the depths, but I know that where I am is far better than where I would be if I got what I deserve. Because God, you're not a God who gives me what I deserve. No, you're a God who is merciful and forgiving and gracious. And that's why I stand in awe of you today. So, we're, so we are in the pits. We are in the depths, in the pain and in those moments, it's, it's wonderful if we're able to then turn our eyes to see the gospel and remember, God, if I got what I deserve, if you made a list of all that I've done and then gave me what I deserve, I would have so much worse than this. Thank you, God, that, 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 that you are not the kind of God, to, that, and, and that kind of God, and you give me mercy and forgiveness when I, when I deserve judgment. That's how he worships in suffering. That's the power of being able to remember the gospel in suffering. Let me read you some words written a few years ago by a young pastor. And he wrote these words in the midst of his own struggle with lymphoma that he was going through at the time. He's not only a pastor, but the father of a young family, and he wrote this. He said, the greatest enemy to gratitude is a sense of entitlement. The moment you think that, you've, that you're hard done by and deserve more, then you can wave goodbye to thankfulness. However, circumstances of sickness, death, or disappointment can lend themselves to a sense of entitlement like no other. And so cultivating gratitude and contentment in all circumstances can be a stiff challenge in a storm of suffering. I have already received from, the, from God far more than I deserve. This former rebel from God and chief of sinners deserves nothing more than eternal condemnation. Anything better than that is a bonus, a radical bonus of grace from God to me. My eternal salvation, every sunrise, every family member, every friend, every mouthful of food, every article of clothing, it's all fair and square in the I never deserved it anyway category. Believe me, you don't want God to treat you fairly. If God were to treat me fairly right now, not only would he back up and remove every single blessing I've had in my 39 years, but he would cast me into eternal condemnation. That's what I deserve. Anything better than that is a bonus. And bonuses make me grateful. I am a grateful man before, during, and after the storm. That is profound. We mustn't have a sense of entitlement, but, but there are some moments, aren't there? And, and this isn't to disparage what we previously said. We, we weep together, but actually in the weeping, 
uh, can, uh, we, we can come to a place where we remember the gospel and remember what God has done in the gospel, that, that God in the gospel has not given us what we deserve. He has not treated us as our sins deserve. Lord, if you kept a record of iniquity, who could stand? If you listed all the things that I've done today, you would condemn me forever. But you haven't done that. You've given me grace instead. With you, there's forgiveness. That's why I stand in awe of you. So when suffering hits us, it's good to remember what we deserve and how in, in Jesus we have been given something far, far better than we could ever, ever merit. And having spent time weeping and worshiping in verses 5 to 6, the psalmist then begins to talk about waiting. And this part is tricky. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. When we're in the depths of despair, the psalmist says, we wait. We say, God, I know that you're going to come through for me. I don't know when, and I don't know how, but I know you will, and I'm waiting. And I'm waiting with the confidence the watchman has when the morning is coming. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, and I will continue waiting. I might, it might be a minute, it might be years, but I'm going to wait from the, for the Lord because I know that he will come through for me because I know, uh, I, I, I know him, and, and I hope in his word. And we do hope in his word, don't we? I know from firsthand experience and from people that I've spoken to who've gone through suffering, the value there is of knowing the Word of God because that's where, that's where your hope is grounded. Because if we're not suffering at the moment, we're at risk of not realizing how important it is to know the Word, to, to know the Word of God because we have not yet been knocked around by circumstances and suffering. But when we are, and when we get there, and we will, we, we all will, when we get there, it's so important for us to know the word on which our hope is based. Because otherwise, circumstances become everything to us. And we don't have our roots in God's word and that, that will sustain us in those dark times. And if you suddenly get to the point of terrible suffering, I tell you, it, it, it's not going to be the time that you suddenly go jumping into, the, in, into Bible studies. Because sometimes you, you maybe physically are not, not up to it. I mean, you might be ill in bed. You might be in all kinds of difficult situations. So we need to be preparing ourselves now we need to know the scriptures now so that when the buffeting comes, uh, I am secure in the hope that I have. And I know, I know about the resurrection of the body. And I know about the new creation. And I know about a world that's coming where there's absolutely no suffering, sin, and death. And I am so confident in it because I've seen it in the scriptures and I'm not being buffeted by these light and momentary afflictions that Paul says I'm going through now. But if we don't know that, then the circumstances become everything. And so we need to start to root our hope in His Word and, and, and resource ourselves for, the, for those moments that will come. And the psalmist says, this is like being a watchman waiting for the morning. How does a watchman wait for the morning? Well, in ancient cities, they had watchmen on the walls, and they would stand on the walls looking out because... They didn't want the city to be attacked at night. 
So they're, they're standing on the walls. They're, 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 they're waiting for the mo- morning, but they're not waiting for the morning, wondering if the morning's going to come. They're not saying, hey, Bill, do you think that, you know, that, you know, there's, the, you know, there's going to be any morning tomorrow, or do you think we saw, you know, that was the last time we've ever seen the sun? They don't have that conversation. They know the morning's coming, but they don't know exactly when. So they wait in anticipation of a certain hope that light will break, but they don't know how long it will be because they don't have watches. And that's how you and I wait. We wait for God in anticipation of something I know is coming, but I don't know when and I don't know how. And that's sometimes very hard. Because in many situations of, of suffering, our deliverance will, become, will come before death. But sometimes it won't. In many situations of intense suffering, deliverance will come before death. In other words, we will have God's healing power or deliverance or redemption in our lives in the here and now. And we will be able to look back and say, wow, that was a, that was a, I, I was hard at the time, but God has delivered me in this life. And it was difficult at the time, but God taught me through it. God, it grew, you know, grew me through it. God matured me through it. Yes, God frequently, again and again, comes through for us now. And so the thing that I'm waiting for might be in the next week or month or year, but sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it isn't. Sometimes the deliverance that we are waiting for won't come this side of the grave. Sometimes the deliverance that we're waiting for won't take place until after we've died and Jesus returns and makes all things new and gives us a new heaven and a new earth and a new resurrection body that doesn't decay or perish, that doesn't get old, that doesn't suffer in the way that we do now. There's, there'll be absolutely no sickness and no misery. There'll be no more tears. God will wipe away every tear. We live in the certain hope of that kind of world because Jesus has been raised from the dead and, and, and that means that the whole of creation will be raised as well and knowing that we live like watchmen waiting for the morning but we don't know whether we're going to get to see the deliverance now or in a year's time or even on the other side of the grave and that can be very difficult because when we, we don't know when our deliverance is coming have you ever seen the documentary uh, Planet Earth? I've shared with you, uh, shared this with you before. But uh, my favorite segment is in the whole series is that that, that part, the, the bit on the um, emperor uh, penguins. Um, if, if you've seen it, you remember what I'm talking about. Um, it, it, because you see, in, in Antarctica, where they where they live, there's no morning for four months. Literally, the sun sets. And then it rises again four months later. Uh, and the, 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 the night lasts for four months. Just think about that. And so it's an amazing thing for an emperor penguin to survive uh, the Antarctic winter. And the way they, they do that is they huddle together closely. And, and they know that... that that one day the morning's going to come, and they wait. They don't know when, they don't have watches, but they wait knowing that morning is going to come. 
And you watch that scene, and it's, it's a pretty bleak situation. But the thing that gets the penguins through is they know that the light is coming. They really do. That's what they're waiting for. Now, what do you think that they are saying to one another when they're in their little kind of huddle like this? You know, minus 70 degrees outside, complete darkness, just dreadful, terrifying winds. It's absolutely overwhelming. And I think the penguins in penguin speak are saying things like Romans 8.23, we, we ourselves groan inwardly while we eagerly await the redemption of our bodies. I think some of them are singing, I can see a light that is coming for the heart that holds on. In the moment, they're thinking, I know that I've got to get through this, and I don't know when and I don't know how, but I know the light is coming. And some of you maybe feel like that's where you are. That's the experience that some of us are in right now. I am waiting like a watchman waits for the morning. And I know sometimes it's very dark and, and, and for a very long time, but while I'm there huddled up, surrounded by my brothers and sisters, keeping me warm and sheltering me from the pain around me, I know that morning is coming. I just don't know when it is. We wait for the Lord. We wait in certain hope. And finally, after weeping, worshiping, and waiting, the psalmist starts witnessing. Now, this is powerful. He says, Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all their iniquities. The psalmist has moved from crying out from the depths of despair uh, through to rallying people around him to say, hey, come and see the character of God who is a redeemer. Come and look at the Lord who is full of steadfast love and redemption and the one who forgives iniquities. Come and look at him. And and he's gone from weeping to witnessing about God saying, I want you to come and, and join me in praising this amazing God with whom there is plentiful redemption and steadfast love. And if you're suffering, you may have no idea how much power it has to the rest of us to hear you witnessing to the faithfulness of God in the depths of where you are. There may be some who are suffering and singing, when the darkness veils His lovely face, I rest on His unchanging grace. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope instead. And you may be singing that, and you may not know that people around you look and think, wow, that's somebody, that, that, that somebody is able to praise God and, and, and witness to his faithfulness in that situation is completely inspiring. For fellow believers, it's very encouraging. And actually, for those who aren't followers of Jesus, it's also very provocative because people will look at your life and they will say, if you in that situation are able to find your joy and your witness to the faithfulness of of, of God, you must have a very gracious and reliable God. I mean, it's easy, isn't it, to celebrate God and say, oh yeah, he's wonderful because, well, I've got a great new job and you know he's given me all this wonderful stuff. It's easy to testify God about, out of the abundance that he gives us. But when you witness to the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God, when you're in the deep, dark suffering, even the most cynical non-believer in Jesus has to look at your life and say, there must be something about this God you worship because there's no other way you could be joyful in that circumstance. There's no other way that you would want to witness to Him. 
your God must be very glorious to get you through this. And there are so many examples of people doing just that kind of thing in this church and through history, and I don't have enough time to get into it really, but maybe just a few examples. I once read a a blog post by a guy whose wife was in a horrible fight with cancer, and he was testifying to some of the experiences he had. And he wrote a post with the the title, There's Gold in Them There Hills, which is something, you know, that the 49ers used to say when people would say to them, what on earth are are you digging into the rocks for? Why are you digging into the hills? It looks so exhausting, it's so draining, and you've got nothing to show for it. And they would say, but there's gold in them there, Hills. I don't know where it is, but I know it's in there, and I'm going to keep going until I find it. I'm going to find, you know, and I'm not going to let go of this beautiful thing that I found until it's given me the riches. And that's a wonderful parable of how the, the, the Christian can come through some seasons and journeys. There's gold. I know my God. I don't know where. I don't know how. But I know God is good and I'm going to keep going until I find that vein of gold that he has there for me. There's a, there's a poem from an American Civil War Confederate veteran just testifying in his own life, to the grace and faithfulness of God, the poem goes, I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked God for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything that I had hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among men most most richly blessed. The guy who wrote The Death of Death and The Death of Christ, one of the greatest works of theology ever, a guy called John Owen, he was an English Puritan. He had 11 children and only one survived infancy. He lost 10 children in infancy. And so when he writes a book about the death of death and the death of Christ, he knows what he's talking about. He's seen a lot of death and he knows the gospel. And so I find that, that his works have a power in them that, wouldn't, you know, that, 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 that you wouldn't have experienced if that wasn't his experience. And, and as he witnesses, like the psalmist does, oh, look, you know, look at the Lord for, with, with whom there is forgiveness and victory. It catches people up with him. And then one of the most well-known examples of this is, of course, the writer of the hymn, and as well with my soul, and most of us know the story, but for those of you who don't, Horatio Spafford lost almost his entire earthly possessions in the Chicago fire, and then while uh, he was sorting out his affairs afterwards, his wife and four daughters got on a transatlantic uh, boat, and as, the, and, and, and as they were journeying, the, the boat sank, and, and, and all four of his daughters were lost. His wife was spared, and, and she began the telegram back to him saying, saved alone, and then began to explain what happened. And he lost almost his entire family and all his money in two separate incidences. And, incidents. and as he got on the boat to join his wife, he wrote the words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, that was taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's got power in it, doesn't it? Because he's witnessing the faithfulness of God out of, out of the darkness. 
And what we mustn't do, by the way, is to think that this is just a, a nonstop journey. You know, you, you, you've gone through the weeping stage, now you go through something else. Nor must we, as those who, who aren't suffering, you know, go and expect people who've only just discovered some awful news, you know, have, expect them to start writing hymns like it is well with my soul. I mean, almost none of us could do that straight away. But many of us, if not all of us, actually, in time, we come to a place of being able to see little glimpses of what God may be doing in you and in others. But that's not where we start. We start with weeping. But we worship God for the gospel. And we wait for him to deliver us. And in time, we get to the place where we're able to witness the glorious faithfulness, love, and forgiving grace of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a glorious gospel that is full of, of hope. Thank you for a gospel and a message of hope and redemption that doesn't cause us to call us to pretend or um, to hide, but we can be honest with where we live our lives. We can be honest like the psalmist is, bringing our, our pains, bringing our sufferings, bringing the, the great and deep troubles of our lives, the places where we feel we're in the depth. We can bring them gladly to you, and you, you hear. You delight to hear the prayers of your people, but it's not as though you just hear them and are indifferent to them. You are a God who has moved and acted in response. And of course, our greatest need of all is a need for salvation. You, you have provided for that in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this table that we can come around now. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, for this tangible picture of the gospel as we take the bread and the cup. We hold these emblems of the body and blood of Christ given for us. Would you feed us? Would you uh, remind us this morning that we don't just have a God that we can call out to and cry out to in prayer um, but that is a God, but you're a God who has come to us, that you are the one who has taken on our flesh, the one who has identified with our struggles and our sufferings, has taken the burden of our sin upon yourself. You've done it all, that, you might, that we might be forgiven, that we might be redeemed and reconciled and brought now to this table in fellowship with you as your sons and daughters. So feed us, nourish us, strengthen us. We're living in perilous times. We're living in times of great uncertainty and anxiety. And as we come to the table, would you confirm again uh, your unshakable love for us, uh, the firm foundation set our feet solidly upon a rock again this morning. So that as we, we live out in this world in this coming week with all of the buffeting, with all the changing circumstances, we will not be a people who are shattered or rattled, but we will be a people that remain faithful even in the trying place. We pray for this and ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. And we do come to this table in celebration looking back in remembrance to that night when the Lord Jesus gathered with his disciples and during the meal he took bread giving thanks to his father for it and, and then he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me. 
And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, my blood that will be poured out for complete remission of all your sins. He said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we get to do that and participate in that this morning. I want to invite you to hear and participate in this welcome to the table from east and west, north and south. People will come and take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Come then to the joyful feast of the Lord and be transformed. Let us proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Feed on them in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving.